Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a passion for well-being. I'm interested in finding out as much as I can about living a happy and healthy life. Before I introduce today's guest, I will mention that, although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, I am here with Dr. Felicity Braithwaite. Felicity is a physiotherapist who completed her PhD in 2018. She now works at the University of South Australia in the Allied Health and Human Performance Group. The aim of this group is to educate future health professionals and deliver solutions-based research that addresses global health needs. Felicity's areas of interest include blinding in clinical trials and the placebo effect, which as I now know, is a really fascinating area, and that is what we will be chatting about today. Today I am here with Dr. Felicity Braithwaite, and as I said in the introduction, she's a physiotherapist and scientific researcher. So hi, Felicity. Hi, how are you going? Good, good. Thank you for coming on today. Felicity, let's start with your career. Why did you decide to become a physiotherapist? Um, yeah, uh, I think it's the classic cliche of just really wanting to help people. But um, I think also I just had a really naive view of what physiotherapy actually was. I literally thought it was just uh, people working in private practice, helping people with back pain or sprained ankles, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I sort of went, progressed through my um, undergraduate degree, I realised how diverse physiotherapy actually is and that you can have all sorts of different careers. And I was really attracted towards a research career um, as I went through my bachelor. Um, I think really because um, of the scale factor. So, you know, the one-on-one clinical situation certainly has its value, but mm. there was something really attractive to me about being able to help people at a, a more population or societal level and really helping advance the physio profession as a whole as well. Yeah, I guess the important point there is that it's all very well for research to be done, but it needs to be translated into clinical application. That's right. Yeah, that's the tricky bit. (laughs) Yeah. And so you did a a PhD. What was your topic? Yeah, I was uh, very lucky with my PhD. I had a really cool topic. So um, it was all about making better placebos for complex treatments that we often use in physiotherapy, like massage, spinal manipulations, exercise prescription, that kind of thing, and how we can actually um, enhance blinding in clinical trials of these treatments, um, which is a real challenge in our field. um, And it's a real reason why a lot of our treatments don't have good evidence to support them is because of the challenges around blinding our complex treatments. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. And we'll definitely delve into that as as we um, continue. But I think probably to set the scene, let's talk about what is a clinical trial and, and what is blinding. So first of all, in a very broad sense, can you explain to us what a clinical trial is? 
Yeah, so basically we use clinical trials to test new treatments to really figure out if these treatments work and how they work, so what mechanisms are actually happening, yeah, that translate into better health outcomes. So really the aim is to make sure that the new treatment has a specific active ingredient or mechanism um, and not just working by more general effects such as placebo effects. So we really want to control for everything that could be driving a change in a health outcome such as pain other than the treatment itself. Um, So, yeah, it's really to make sure that um, these treatments, you know, have are working by other mechanisms that aren't just placebo effects and um, uh, and that's really important ethically because if it is just working by placebo effects um, and the treatment has risks, then um, that's, a, that's a bit of an ethical problem. Yeah, it's quite a complex area. I mean, there's lots of fields in which you can do clinical trials, but I think one of the classic ones would be like taking some kind of a pill because yeah. it's easy to control for everything else, isn't it? And then the difference is the pill. But in some of the trials you're doing, it's a bit, and we'll get into this, it's a lot harder to control mm-hmm. for certain things. And you've, you have touched on this, but how then do you think clinical trials add to our knowledge? Yeah, so like I was just saying, um, they really help us understand how our treatments are working. So a big problem we have in, a, in our field is um, that often, tra- often treatments can appear to work um, just because uh, we expect them to work or placebo mm. effects, things like that. So we experience a treatment and then we feel better. Um, and so in clinic with clinical trials, we really want to make sure that the treatment is actually adding something unique and specific. Yeah, so basically we can, with a clinical trial, we can really isolate the thing that we think is um, unique and specific about that treatment. Like, for example, in a drug trial, if it's a specific chemical in the drug that mm. we think changes the physiology of the body or the, the health outcome we're interested in, we can isolate that in a clinical trial and really make sure that that's what's driving a, a real change. I can certainly appreciate why things like that are important because you can't go around prescribing drugs or pills because you think, oh, they'll probably work. <laughs> we need to know for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially if there are things like side effects with a drug, we want to make sure that um, that it's kind of worth it, the risk versus benefit, um, weighing yes. that up. Uh, so if it does have a really specific effect on our body's physiology and signs and symptoms, then we can sort of weigh that against the side effects and make a decision with, about whether we prescribe it. While we're still on the topic of trials, can you explain to us again in sort of lay terms what what does blinding mean in a trial situation yeah so basically blinding um is it it happens when we have a placebo so what we want to do in a blinded clinical trial is we'll have two groups of people that are randomly split or with the health same health condition and one group will get the real treatment and the other group will get Um, a fake treatment that mimics the real treatment in every single way except for what we think is the unique, specific active ingredient of the real Mm -hmm. treatment. So basically what this does is it equalises everything between the two groups except for that active ingredient. Um, And uh, with a successfully blinded trial, 
Essentially, we want everyone involved in the trial, including the patients, the therapists and the researchers, not knowing who got what. Um, and this, this actually um, equalises particularly things like people's thoughts and beliefs about the treatment, their perceptions of the treatment, how well it might work for them. Because this, if there's an imbalance in those beliefs between the groups, mm. for example, if one group of patients know they're getting the real treatment, they're going to have a bigger expectation that it will work versus if they know they're in the placebo group, they're probably not going to think it's going to work. And this is going to lead to a false positive trial because that difference in placebo effects will, will make it look like the treatment's working when it's actually, when it's actually just placebo effects that are the difference. Well, this, it is quite complex, I think, to tease all that out. But I guess the other thing about blinding is that, that you also touched on is uh, the person administering the treatment if they're or assessing the results, if they're also blinded, then they can't think, oh, this person got the treatment and so become a bit biased in terms of what they're looking for in the results. Totally, yeah. Yeah, so often researchers are um, invested in a particular outcome of the trial. Yes. And, uh, you know, we don't do it on purpose. It's just human nature to, to want a particular result and our behaviour um, will change because of that even unconsciously. So, for example, if you're looking at something like joint ranges in a trial, um, you're more likely to round up <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you know the patient is in the, the real treatment group and round down if you know the patient's in the placebo group. Um, we don't do this consciously. It's just human nature. Yeah, of course it is. I think if you're testing something new, the idea is that you actually want it to work. You want it to be useful and, you know, yeah. advance the science. So, yes, of course, that, that must be part of human nature. And you have, you have mentioned placebo a few times, so let's, let's drill down into, into that. And as we said, like taking a pill, for example, is something that it's pretty easy to make a placebo pill. You just make a sugar pill that looks exactly the same. But you've been involved in some in trials that <laughs> involve some pretty difficult things to create a placebo for, like dry needling. To me, that's absolutely fascinating, and I just can't conceive of how you actually managed to do that. <laughs> so could you, first of all, set the scene a bit about understanding pain and the placebo effect and then we'll talk about the the dry needling experiment yeah sure so um so basically pain is an output of our brain so because of that our thoughts and feelings can really powerfully influence our experience of pain um and uh basically we we get pain when our brain thinks we need to protect our body part so uh, pain is a really great motivator to get us to protect something. <laughs> um, so our brain really balances all the information that we're getting, um, any credible evidence of danger versus any credible evidence of safety. So a really classic example of this is when we maybe get an X-ray of our knee and our doctor sort of shows us that we've got severe arthritic changes um, and we might actually experience more pain because of this information because we believe, oh, we've got this really credible information that um, my knee is damaged and like there's wear and tear, bone on bone, that sort of thing. Um, so our brain wants to protect it more. Um, but sometimes this can be really problematic because we can have inaccurate thoughts or beliefs and um, 
this is the classic case in osteoarthritis because um, actually arthritic changes are a normal part of the aging process. But they're, if they're framed in that negative way, like, oh, you, you know, you've got some severe damage in there, our brain can be a bit, bit overprotective. Yeah, where this comes into the placebo effect, I think, is um, so placebo effects are beneficial effects or improvements in signs and symptoms caused by our perception of a treatment and the context in which it's delivered in. Um, so if we're giving, if we're given a treatment that we believe is going to work for us and it's delivered by a really trusted, credible health professional, that's a massive safety cue from uh for our brain to be like, okay, maybe our, we don't need so much pain after we've had this treatment because um, we're safer now. So we need to make sure we're controlling for these sorts of things in clinical trials and make to make sure that the treatment that we're testing has effects beyond this sort of thing. It's fascinating how much pain is tied up with your psychology. There's a real psychological component to it. So a few episodes ago, I chatted with um, Brendan Mowat. Is he a colleague of yours? He is, yeah. <laughs> yes, and we and like him, you're also into pain, and we we did talk about the psychological component of pain and how a person's state of mind, including their fear of pain, can influence the experience of pain. So it's it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, as you've just said, it can a placebo effect, which is a state of mind, also influences the perception of pain. So if we go back to your dry needling experiment, can you explain to us what you did and how and how you managed to create a placebo needle? Yeah. So, yeah, my basically my whole PhD was dedicated to, to developing this one placebo. That sort of shows how complicated and difficult it is. Um, But basically, we actually developed a four-stage process to develop placebos for complex treatments, and we just used dry needling to test this process. Um, So first of all, we looked at previous studies of dry needling, um, placebo-controlled dry needling trials, and we looked at what they did to, um, to blind people and whether or not we thought that would have worked and some people, some trials actually measured blinding, so we looked at that data and and help, that helped us make decisions about what we would include in our placebo. Um, and then we got a bunch of experts to come in and we showed them all this data from previous trials and got them to help us develop a placebo for dry needling specifically. And uh, the, the best part about that stage was one of the groups of experts we involved was magicians. <laughs> yeah, I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the reason we, um, we recruited magicians was because they have actually been experimenting with humans uh, and human brains and how they work for centuries. So they've developed this really um, unique understanding of how to shift cognitions and perceptions. And we just thought, well... Um, who better to ask than people that trade in this sort of deception to enhance the illusion of treatment in placebo groups because it's really all about getting people to believe they've experienced a real complex physiotherapy treatment when they actually haven't. So it's really all about effective deception. So, yeah, um, they had some great ideas about how to do that, particularly around using language, manipulating expectations and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think one of the things I read was that in terms of 
managing expectations, one of the things the clinician said was you may not feel anything when the needle goes in. So I can, I can, having had dry needling myself, I can see how that that would set up the expectation that if you're getting the the sham needle and you don't feel much, you wouldn't think, oh, well, that's not working or that's not real or. Yeah, yeah. I think that was actually a really important strategy that we used. Um, we also only included people in our study who had never had needling therapy before. Okay. So um, that's something that uh, we recommend for clinical trials that are trying to blind people because if they've had it before, they're going to have a better idea of what it's what it feels like. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. And it there definitely is. I believe some people respond um, well to dry needling more than others and I've been told I'm a responder and I can feel like, I don't know what it is, like a current or something going through the muscle. So yeah, <laughs> I guess if you if you knew that, you'd be expecting that feeling, wouldn't you? So Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think I think that was uh, really key to, to the success of our protocol. So um, and it's something that pe- previous studies have done too, is just only include people that have never experienced the therapy before, because it does, it does actually really help with the blinding. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent. What was the aim then? Was the aim to work out how to do the placebo or was it to then go on and use dry to test dry needling or is that another kind of um, trial in the future? Yeah. So in my study, it was literally just testing if we could blind yeah. it, blind people. So the aim actually was um, to blind both the participants, the patients and the therapists as well simultaneously, which had never been done in a dry needling mm. trial before. So yeah, our primary outcome for that study was just looking at whether blinding worked or not. And the way we did that was we we just asked everyone who participated if which group they thought they were in, the real group or the placebo group, and we compared those guesses to random chance. <laughs> so, um, so if we sort of, our hypothesis was that if uh, the correct guesses were 50% or less, then the blinding worked because then it's just like random guessing. Yes, yes. And was that the case? Yeah. So um, it was quite amazing, actually. So the patient group uh, were correct about 49% of the time. So almost bang on random chance. Yeah. And the therapists were even worse. They they were correct about 41% of the time. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Because you would have actually expected the opposite. You'd expect the therapist to be a bit harder to blind. Yeah, yeah. We mm. we didn't think it would work so yeah. well. Um, oh, well done. <laughs> it had never been done before. So we we when we looked at all the previous uh, placebo trials in dry needling, we had no data to base our therapist blinding on because, um, yeah, it literally had never been tried before. But I think that's where the magicians really helped. Um, one of the strategies that came from a magician to blind the therapists was one of my favourite things ever. <laughs> We actually um, randomised fake participants into their um, treatment list. So uh, every three or four treatments, they'd get this fake person to come in and that the fake participant would know what they're about to get, whether it was real or placebo, um, and they would act like it was the opposite. So if they got the placebo, they would be like, oh, that hurt, or, you know, acting <laughs> like it was real and vice versa. When it was real, they were trained to not react at all and just sort of say things like, oh, I didn't feel a thing, you know. Um, and we think that actually um, 
sort of uh, mediated the beliefs about um, the allocation of their other real patients. How extraordinary. And for these people, the fake patients, were they, how did you train? Were they actors? How did you recruit those people? <laughs> no, they were just people that, like, I knew that were free. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, think, I think my mum did a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just, it was pretty easy just to, you know, all we did was sort of um, give them a few tips on how to act. Like, we, and yeah. an important part of it, though, was not overacting and giving it away. Yeah, of course. It was just little yeah. subtle things, really. Yeah, like yeah. screaming when the placebo needle <laughs> goes in. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, yeah, I think also with the therapist blinding, we did have special placebo needles as well. Um, so these kind of, they were shortened, so they didn't even touch the patient's skin, but they were in like a, a tube that you couldn't see through. So you couldn't tell if it was real or not from the outside and it had right. um it actually had some foam within this tube for the placebo version that made it feel like the therapist was piercing through the patient's skin so that on top of you know the suggestions from the actors and just the visual illusion of the needle going down into the tube yeah. um all of these things contributed to um these therapists believing it was real that's amazing. It must have been quite a delicate placebo needle that you came up with because they are very thin and small, aren't they? I mean, well, they're long, but they're they're tiny. So yeah, and sometimes people um, do report not feeling anything at all with real dry needling. So we weren't mm. exactly lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are quite thin and small. So with the placebo effect, you you have said a lot of it depends on the person's expectations and beliefs and that was one of the things you were trying to manipulate in the trial so what are some of the factors that um, modulate how powerful a placebo is yeah so it's interesting um the placebo effect is actually relatively poorly understood about like what actually neurobiologically is going on um, but we do have a few sort of ideas about things that can sort of power up the placebo effect mm -hmm. um, and it really comes down to uh, people's expectations about how much it's, a treatment's going to work for them and um, that is really related to how credible the treatment is to the person. Right. So um, things like how ritualistic the treatment is, is there like a big ritual that's like really medical and professional involving medical devices things like that, um, how invasive it is. So, for example, a pill, a placebo pill is less powerful than a placebo injection, which is less powerful than a placebo surgery. So, <laughs> um, yeah, like the placebo surgeries have really powerful placebo effects, which makes clinical trials, like, really important to make sure mm. that these really risky invasive procedures are actually worth doing. And, yeah, also things like how the therapist is acting is really important as well. So therapist expectations can play into the patient's mm -hmm. placebo effect. Um, often with treatments that we use in physio or in medicine, uh, the therapist or doctor has to be specially trained to deliver certain therapies. Dry needling is a classic example of that. Yeah. You don't get trained to do that in university. You do special training that you pay for yourself to do it. So usually people who are delivering it are really enthusiastic about it and will um, 
verbally give lots of verbal suggestions to mm-hmm. the patient about how great it is and how much it's going to work. So all of this stuff really plays into um, how powerful the placebo effect will be for the person. That's really interesting because thinking about it now, if you go and see someone so you know, for dried needling, for example, if they said to you, ah, this may or may not work, not really sure, uh, you know, that's not, I can see how that's going to make the patient think, oh, well, this might not work and could have an impact. So from the the therapist delivering the treatment's point of view, it's good for them to also send a positive message mm. because even if part of the effect of the treatment, part of it's real, part of it's placebo, if it's having a positive effect, that's still a good thing, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point actually because um, I think – yeah, we can actually harness these placebo effects in clinical practice with proven treatments. So mm. the placebo effect can be additive to treatment-specific yeah. effects. And so we can use all of these things to our advantage as long as we're not being deceptive about it and lying about the evidence. <laughs> yeah, of course. There yeah. has to be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can't, um, we can't pretend it's going to work if it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we still have to be honest about the um the potential benefits and um, also the side effects as well. But we can use clever ways of informing people in a way that does actually enhance placebo effects and minimise nocebo effects, which are actually kind of like the opposite of placebo effects. They're Mm -hmm. negative or adverse treatment effects due to things like negative expectations. Um, So a really clever trick that um, actually has some good evidence around it is um, when we inform people about side effects of treatments, um, we can use something called positive attribute framing, which is instead of saying something like, oh, 30% of people will experience nausea with this drug, you can flip it and say 70% of people will not experience nausea Mm. with this drug. And that actually has a meaningful effect on nocebo effects, which is amazing. And it's still, you know, you're not being deceptive. It's It's the same information. Yeah, Mm. exactly. Yeah. Well, that to me explains how some people might have an effect with more non-traditional things like believing that crystals might heal them or or something like that. I mean, I have no idea whether they work or not, but I'm, I'm sure part of that is probably what someone believes. Yeah, belief is just a huge factor. And that's like I was saying before, like it's a big problem in our field is because of placebo effects, treatments can appear to work really well, (laughs) but they might not have an actual specific mechanism. So we need to test them in clinical trials to make sure that they do. And um, particularly if the treatment does have risks, like dry needling is a good example there, because if, if dry needling is no better than pretending to dry needle, then why expose someone to the risk of infection? Yeah, of Mm. course. I've read about, um, I'm just interested for your view on this, I read about um, some recent research about non-deceptive placebos. So that's when the patient knows that they're actually receiving a placebo. And in this particular trial, it was something to do with looking at images and traumatic images and how their brain reacted it was found that the the placebo the people knowing that they were having the placebo it still had a positive impact on them which suggests that the power of the mind is extraordinary 
So when they were delivered this placebo, which I think was a nasal spray or something, it, they were told it's a placebo but it may have beneficial effects and it did still seem to create them. So do you think that that, does that sound plausible, that kind of reaction? Yeah, these studies are super interesting. Um, it's still a relatively new area of research, but they're, they're basically called open-label placebos. So, yeah, like you said, the person knows they're getting a placebo. But um, part of the, those studies is talking about placebo effects and how they work from a from a neurobiological perspective. So mm-hmm. just doing that does actually create some positive expectancy. Um, so... Yeah, one of the theories behind why open-label placebos might work is because of the information that's given around it and the narrative around it. But also it has actually generated some really um, exciting new hypotheses about other mechanisms behind placebo effects because it's not just one thing. It's a real collection Mm. of mechanisms that underpin placebo effects and we still don't have a very good understanding of um, where these effects are coming from. Um, But this sort of research really sort of suggests that um, a lot of the placebo effect may be unconscious mechanisms. So, um, yeah, you you know you're getting a placebo, your expectancy of benefit might be quite low or even non-existent, but you're still having a response. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of exciting. Um, It really suggests that our brain and body is responding to the context of the treatment regardless of what's going on consciously. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah, I think it's an exciting area and should stimulate some really cool research in this field. Yeah, it's, abs- it's fascinating. I wonder just sort of off the top of my head if part of it is the fact that you're actually being listened to and someone's taking an interest in what your problem is and paying you some attention. And, I mean, I wonder if that has an impact. I mean, I don't know how you ever measure for that, but it possibly Totally. And I think, um, I actually do think that that's why there is such a huge market for unproven alternative treatments because yeah. people who deliver those treatments are actually experts at, at you know, creating a placebo enhancing clinical environment. They will spend a lot longer with you than um, lots of Western medicine health professionals. Yeah. They'll listen to your story um, and they'll have like a really comfortable environment. They have, might have some music playing, all these sorts of things that really probably enhance uh, how we feel and the, the context of the treatment in a way that um, really enhances those placebo effects. So, yeah, we, I think we can actually learn quite a lot from, from them. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think there's there's potential for a lot of crossover. And I guess from the point of view of the person receiving the treatment, if it works for them, whether it's placebo, you know, whatever percentage is attributable to placebo or not, if it works for them, it's still a good result. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it is, it is um, you know, a good result is a good result. Um, yeah, where it just becomes tricky, like I said before, is when there's risk. Um, yes, of course. So, yeah, and, you know, that's particularly important in things like I mentioned before, the dry needling when you're potentially introducing infection, but also things like surgery. Um, if we have a placebo trial where there's no difference between someone who gets um, a really invasive surgery versus just a, a placebo surgery which is usually they just have the incision and that's it so they'll still have the general anesthetic 
and they'll wake mm-hmm. up with a, an incision, but they won't know if they actually had the surgery or not. And if there's no difference in that situation, then it's grounds to reject the surgery because we don't need to be putting people under a general and exposing them to risk in terms of infection as well if pretending to do it is no, is just as good. So they might still have a good result, but, um, yeah, it's all placebo effect, so we probably need to try something else. Well, that's really interesting, though, because then I wonder if the result is okay, the surgery is no better than the the fake surgery, how do you then create that if the if the result is okay we're not going to do that particular type of surgery because we can't see the benefits mm. i wonder then how you create that effect in the patient without doing any even a fake surgery but anyway yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah then we probably look to alternative treatments like um yes yeah something something with more evidence and look at what look more at what factors do enhance those placebo effects under those conditions and try and implement those in other areas that have less risk. Yeah, well, what a fascinating area to be to be working in. And can you tell us, Felicity, about some of the other interesting studies you've been involved with or know about? Yeah, so um, right now I am uh, coordinating a really big multi-site clinical trial for knee arthritis. Um, so we're, we're looking at whether exercise and education can lead to improvements in knee arthritis in that one. So that's a really exciting one just starting now. Um, I've done another a few other trials, mostly in chronic pain. Um, we've done one where we looked at um, delivering pain education for low back pain hypnotically. <laughs> so that was a fun one. <laughs> um, and we've also done a really cool one with children who are getting um, vaccination, so the flu mm-hmm. vaccination, and how we could use different strategies to make that less of a traumatic experience for them, things like uh, distraction and positive memory reframing. So speaking to them about what they did really well. So when they remember it a few days later, um, it wasn't as bad and then they go for their next injection and they're more confident and it's less of a less of a bad experience for them. That's yeah. a brilliant idea. I, I mean, I think um, I remember when my son was about, well, he must have been about three and he he hated having injections and it was quite traumatic. We had to, we needed two people to sort of hold him down because he'd wriggle around and mm. cry. And at one point, you know, we sort of lost our concentration. He bolted off down the, down the hallway. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that made it a lot worse, obviously, because we had to haul him back and hold him down. Yeah. He's 19 now. He's a bit braver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a common story and, uh, mm. and it can actually lead to, um, things like lower vaccination rates in the community. Um, so it's a really important thing to try and reduce the trauma associated with these <laughs> injections yeah. and, um, and uh, make it a better experience for everyone. Sometimes when you th- hear about studies like that, you think, gosh, why hasn't someone thought of that before? And with the lower back uh, study you talked about and the hypnosis, can you tell me what um, the findings were? What did you discover in that trial? Yeah, so unfortunately that study was just a feasibility study. So okay. We, what we did, uh, it was more just testing um, whether a big 
trial, big clinical trial looking at that intervention would be feasible. So we only had 20 people in that study and it, it was more just about testing the procedures of the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, so the main thing we wanted to look at with that study was whether using hypnosis uh, to deliver pain education would help them learn the information better. And it, like preliminary results suggested that that it might, but we definitely need a bigger trial to confirm that. So it's too early to really comment on that. But yeah, um, hopefully a bigger trial will, will be uh, started up looking at that specifically soon. That's so interesting. I mean, who comes up with these trial ideas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all sort of uh, sit down together and talk about ideas like this and, yeah. <laughs> and I guess it's building on what's already known, isn't it? So if yes. we know X, what's X plus one or however it works. Exactly, um, yeah. Yep. I think it's probably time to, to wrap things up. Sure. Um, so, Felicity, can you tell me, you're obviously busy. What do you do to relax? Um, Yeah, so I think the main thing that I always default to to relax is just really catching up with people that I love and trying to have a really good belly laugh. (laughs) Yeah. I really, yeah, I think that's uh, the best de-stressor out there really is just um, being around, surrounded by people you love and just laughing. Yeah. 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 And we are very lucky here in South Australia because during this COVID um, pandemic, we haven't been too badly impacted uh, unlike our, our friends in Victoria who are still in lockdown. So we have been able to see our friends and, and laugh, which has been, yeah. I think, a good thing for a lot of us. I know, yeah, we're very fortunate here in Adelaide, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. And Felicity, who inspires you? Yeah, um, this is a tricky one. Um, so I don't think a particular person really inspires me. It's more, um, It's more doing things that matter that inspires me. I think um, I always try to do things that I believe make a really high value contribution to society. And I feel really lucky to be surrounded by people who I work with who also strive for this. So I Mm. guess, um, yeah, just being in this uh, community where we, that's, you know, working towards that common goal is really what keeps me going. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. A final question that I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Yeah. um, So for me specifically, I think the main thing that keeps me happy in life is just finding my passion and relishing in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love my work and I feel really grateful every day to do what I do. And I think that has a really, like, it's a really big contributor to my overall wellbeing. So I think, um, yeah, no matter what it is, it doesn't have to be work, but just find your passion and, and just relish in it. Um, I used to, when I worked clinically as a physio, I used to try and get my patients to focus on this a lot as well, particularly people with pain and chronic pain because Mm -hmm. uh, focusing on something else that really brings you joy can actually help with with the way that you manage your pain yeah and then the second thing um is don't be ashamed of your guilty pleasures (laughs) I I like that (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think we all have them and uh I think it's really important to to enjoy them and you know obviously in balance but yeah yeah, enjoy them and just treat yourself every now and then (laughs) Oh, that's excellent advice. I think if we take everything way too seriously, 
then, you know, life can feel a bit like a burden. It's good to, you know, to give yourself a treat. But as you say, enjoy it, not um, to associate it with guilt. Like if, for example, I love chocolate, so try not to have it too often. But when I do have it, I think, okay, I want it to be really good quality chocolate that I'm going to really enjoy here. Exactly, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, really getting away from the shame around those sorts of things and focusing on uh, on enjoyment is really uh, really good for well-being. Yes, I totally agree. And so, Felicity, if someone wants to um, follow what you're involved in, what you're doing research-wise, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I do have a Twitter account, so that's okay. at, at FBraithwaitePT. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that's probably the best way to follow what I'm doing. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast today. It was so interesting to chat to you about the placebo effect. It was something I didn't know a lot about apart from, I guess, what's in the popular press. Yeah, it's interesting to delve a bit more into that. So thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. It is a fascinating thing to talk about. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. And that was Dr. Felicity Braithwaite, physiotherapist and scientific researcher. Thank you for listening and I hope that you found today's interview about the placebo effect interesting. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, You can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com where you can contact me via the contacts page And if you would like to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about or people you'd like to hear me interview, please send me a note and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job and I dedicate a lot of time, obviously, money and effort into producing it. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via my Patreon page, which I am working on improving at the moment, or via PayPal from the support page on my website. I'll put a link to that page in the show notes, so please do check it out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click on the Amazon link there, at no extra cost to you, I will receive a small commission when you buy a book as I am an Amazon affiliate. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.